Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Oh, my God. 
Two weeks ago, we were in Ephesians 4, and we got as far as verse 10. So we will be picking up today in Ephesians 4. The subject of this whole chapter has been unity within the body. Paul today is going to describe how it is that God intends to create that sort of unity within the body. And he's going to accomplish that through appropriate leadership and appropriate teaching so that the church can come together with a unified faith and unified belief. We're going to start reading at verse 1 so that we can build up speed so that we hit verse 11 on the run. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That phrase kind of sums up the next three chapters because Paul is going to talk in some great detail about how you should behave yourself, how you should walk out your life what you should think, what you should believe, how you should view the world, and how you should walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling. Two weeks ago, I took the time to show you several different examples of calling in the New Testament so that we could understand what that call was, and that call was a call from God for the purpose of bringing you to Christ For the purpose of him being your complete sufficient redemption and salvation so that you can stand before God fully redeemed, spotless and unblemished. And it is God who began that process in order to present you to himself. That is why we say he is sovereign in salvation, because he began the process. He continues the process. He completes the process, and he does all of that for his own glory as an example, as a demonstration of his own grace. All of that is described in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. God's absolute foreordination, his predestination. Paul yanks out all those kind of big theological words in order to describe what it is that God has done for us. So then knowing that God has done all that for you, how should you walk? How should you behave yourself? How should you conduct yourself in this sin-soaked world? Here in the realm of the prince of the power of the air. Here on a planet that is full of God-hating sinners, how should you be? And his argument is, you should be different. They should be able to tell that you're not part of that world system. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, encourage you, give you directive in order to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling with which you have been called. And then his first description of what that would look like. With all humility and gentleness, Two weeks ago, I asked you the question and then threatened to up and leave if you didn't answer this question correctly. What is the most often cited and repeated sin in the Bible? 
Pride. And so Paul starts right off by addressing the big issue and says that you ought to walk in humility, which is the very opposite of the way that prideful, arrogant, egocentric humans walk. We start out full of pride, full of ego, full of selfishness. And at some point, that pride, that arrogance has to be broken in you in order to bring you to an appropriate humility. And so God, out of love for you, because he has chosen you before the foundation of the world, because he has ever loved you, because he intends to get you to your eternity that he has planned for you, he will, by kindness, by grace, break your pride. And that's never fun, and it's never easy. And yet, out of love, because he has your best interest at heart, Paul can also write that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called, according to God's purpose. So, humility is where we start in walking out our Christian calling. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with each other, enduring one another, because after all, remember your example, God has put up with you, and I guarantee you that not a day goes by when you don't do something or think something or don't do something that is a huge disappointment to God. And yet, he, did you just poke your husband? You know, I'm right here. I can see you. <sighs> Every day, you do things that let God down. Every day. And he, because he is long-suffering, because he is patient and kind to you, that's why he doesn't give up on you. That becomes your example. That becomes the standard for you, that you should also be patient with each other because God's been patient with you. So with humility and with gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in sacrificial love. And I keep stressing that the love that God demonstrated to you was the love when he sacrificed his son for unworthy people like you. You didn't earn that kind of love. He demonstrated that love toward us because it is a sacrificial love. It is the love that does what is best for the person being loved, regardless of whether the person being loved is capable of responding in a positive way to it. It is sacrificial love. And so we are told because of our love for one another, because after all, God loved us with his everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, he drew us to himself. And so it is his love that motivated. And Paul has already said this in the beginning of this letter, that it is his love for us that motivated him to do all the gracious things that he has done for us. Therefore, be humble, be gentle, be patient, be forbearing with one another, and be sacrificial toward one another. Oftentimes, that's where we draw the line. We say, I'll help you. I'll be good to you. 
I'll give you what you need until it costs me something. At the point where it impinges on my freedoms, at the point where it costs me something, that's where I draw the line. But in order for love to be genuine agape love, it has to be sacrificial. It needs to cost you something because it cost God a lot. It cost Christ a lot. I mean, what did Christ do to demonstrate how much he loved you? Everything. He bore the wrath of God so that you are not appointed to wrath. How much love was that? And what did it cost him? And so Jesus, while he was on the planet, said that you, in order to follow him, should count the cost. Because it is going to cost you something in order to demonstrate the sort of sacrifice that is emblematic, that is demonstrative of genuine Christian calling. I'm still introducing, I'm just hoping that I'm revving up in you the memory of what you learned a couple of weeks ago. Being diligent, that means put in the work, do it intentionally. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. One. So if I have the Holy Spirit and Steve has the Holy Spirit, how many Holy Spirits are there? One. One. Still one. So there is this bond of unity between me and Steve because we have the same singular Holy Spirit within us. So then Paul says, let that be the inspiration. Let that be the impetus to be diligent to preserve the unity of that spirit. The Holy Spirit would not be contrary to himself. He's not going to argue with himself. He's not schizophrenic. The Holy Spirit that is in each of us individually is what unifies us. Despite what differences we may have personally, despite what preferences we might have personally, what opinions we might have personally, the thing that we all have in common is the very Spirit of God. And knowing that, we are told to be diligent to protect that bond of unity, to be active, to be intentional. To preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's the reason that we fight for the unity is so that there's peace within the church. So that there's peace amongst us. So that we're not quarreling with each other all the time. So that we're not breaking off into factions. So that we're not dividing the body of Christ. It is the unity of the spirit that creates that bond of peace. No matter how much I might decide to argue with Luann, let's say, because she's sitting right here. And I've never argued with Luann. I, whatever differences she and I may have, the fact that we are both Christian people who are walking after Christ, who share the same common Holy Spirit, trumps all the rest of whatever differences we might have. In the end, we are going to be diligent to protect that bond of peace through the Holy Spirit. 
Why? Because there is, verse 4, there is one body. And there is one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now he's going to start talking about the gift that Christ gave. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, and we saw how there was a variety of different gifts within the body. But that even though there was this variety, it was up to the Spirit of God how those gifts were exercised how they were dispersed among the body. Because remember, always remember, never forget that Christ is in the enterprise of building his church. And so he fits everybody together in his church like a great tapestry so that the church works together as a singular body. Not everybody has the same gift. Not everybody has the same exercise of the same gift if they have the same gift. They each, particularly and individually, are given a gift according to the grace of God, a gift that benefits the whole body. And that's the way that the body operates. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he's quoting from Psalm 68, 18. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The reason that Paul quotes that is obviously because of the reference to gifts, to the fact that Christ himself ascended on high. He's no longer here on the planet. So since he's not here, he, by his spirit, gave gifts to individual men, individual people, for the good of the whole body. Then in verse 9 and 10, in some of your translations, certainly here in the NASB, they parenthesize it because it's almost like Paul saw the phrase, when he ascended on high, he led captive, a host of captives, and he just felt motivated to comment on that. If you were to take that parenthetical phrase out of the way, what you would see is this succession of Pauline thought. He says, to each of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he quotes from Psalm 68 that he ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. Then verse 11 says, and he gave some. So it's all about the gifting that Christ has done to men. Now, the reason for the particular gifting that he's about to list is gifting within the church of proper leadership and a proper doctrine and a proper understanding of that doctrine. And the important thing that Paul is really emphasizing here is that correct biblical understanding and doctrine and leadership is a gift that comes from Christ for the sake of Christ, for the body of Christ, so that the church of Christ is unified in spirit. 
Tom and I come out of a church out in Los Angeles where the pastor of that church, so-called, um, used to go to this passage frequently in order to say with great bravado, I'm a gift. I'm a gift given to this church. And you need to respond to me like a gift. Right? My lion? That's right. Yeah. So that he would put the emphasis on, I, the human, am a gift from God. It's not what Paul is getting at. And let me say this as plainly and clearly as I possibly can. If you are in a church today where there is a guy at the front of the room who uses this passage to exalt himself, don't walk. Run. Get away from that man. Because that is not the point here. In fact, the more I understand of this job that I have been assigned to do within the body of Christ, the more it has humbled me and the more it has made me realize that I can't do it without Christ. And so as you read this list of gifts, recognize that Paul is saying Christ himself placed these gifts within his own church for the purpose of the edification of the whole body. And that's what Paul's about to say, that the reason he gifted some leaders within the church was for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so this is all part of Christ himself building his church according to his own design. And if he has put a man in leadership and that man uses it as a source of pride and ego that is the opposite of what Paul has said because he began by saying walk in a manner worthy of your calling start with humility and yet I have seen so many preachers through the years use this phraseology that we're about to read in order to advance themselves and I'm just here to tell you uh uh-uh No, no, sir. No, siree, Bob. Goose egg. Don't do it. No. That's not what it means. Read the context. Read what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that these people are put in place and they are under God's headship and under God's control. And that should humble them. It should not make them advanced in their ego. And he gave some. These first three offices that he's going to talk about, the names, the words, have just simply moved into the English language through transliteration. For instance, he gave some apostles, apostolos. You can see that the Greek word sounds just like the English word. You can see the derivation of the word very easily. So why did he start in his church by giving sent ones? Because while he was here on the planet... He chose 12 people, and then he taught them for three and a half years what he wanted them to know and promote and write down in the very Bible we're reading today. And so the beginning of the foundation of the church and the unity within the church is what the apostles taught. What have the apostles handed down to us? And the only way we're going to know that is to read our Bibles. Again, that's why we spend so much time just pounding the Bible, because that is 
the apostolic words of God. They have apostolic authority, and they were written down for our learning and our edification. So in the process of building his own church, he began with apostles. By the way, I don't believe that there are apostles anymore. Even though there are men within the church who will claim to be apostles, there were very particular requirements in order to be an apostle, and it included seeing the risen Lord. The requirement for the original 12 was that they walked and talked with Jesus during his three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry. And then Paul comes along and says, I'm also an apostle. I persecuted the church, but I did meet Jesus. I did meet the risen Lord, and he, by his grace, made me what I am. I'm an apostle. I don't think any of us in this room could make that same argument. We would have to say that we are Christians walking out our Christianity based on what has been taught us by the apostles. And so Christ began with apostolic teaching, picking 12 men teaching those people, those people wrote things down, that's what we learn from. So he gifted the church with apostles. Secondly, with some prophets, the Greek words prophetes, you can see that that again just transliterated, migrated its way right into the English as prophets. It really wasn't translated as much as transliterated. Now that word, prophetes, that idea of being a prophet doesn't just mean to tell the future in advance. Certainly it does mean that. When you look at John, John was a prophet to the church. There are people within the early foundation of Christianity who worked prophetically in saying what was coming toward the church. And we read about that. You even read about it in the book of Acts. But the word translated prophet or prophesy really at its core means to speak under inspiration and so when speaking under inspiration you may be foretelling the future certainly we see that kind of prophecy in the bible but it also can mean just as equally to speak under inspiration the words of god so if you can open the bible understand what it's saying, and then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, elucidate what that means, that is that same word, prophetes, various different versions of that word. Christ gave the church not only the apostolic teaching, he then gave people the ability to understand the words on the page and what that teaching is about, and tell other people, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's the prophets. This is all Christ building the foundation and the necessary ingredients for a well-taught church that would walk by the word, that would walk according to what Christ expects of us. Thirdly, then, the word evangelist, euangelistus, is the Greek word. That comes from the word euangelion. The word euangelion is translated gospel all the way through the New Testament. So really, a euangelistus is somebody who tells the euangelion. An evangelist is technically a gospelist. 
If you see somebody holding an evangelist meeting, a tent meeting, and all they're doing is hooting and hollering and laying hands on people and revving everybody up emotionally, that's not an evangelist. What the word evangelist means is to go tell the gospel. Okay, so Christ is building his church. He starts out with the teaching. He starts out with the apostolic teaching. He moves from there to giving people who can speak under inspiration, who can explain that teaching, who can read those words, who can understand the words on the page and advance those ideas. Those are the prophetes. And then he gives people who go out into the world and tell the gospel in order to bring some sheep into the church. He doesn't just create apostolic leadership and prophetic ability to understand it. He also creates the methodology for bringing people to hear it. Again, he's just building the structure of his church by using the euangelistes, the gospelists, to go out and tell the euangelion the gospel. Now, those first three offices, as I mentioned earlier, word-wise just sort of migrated into the English language, sounding essentially like the Greek words. But then we get to the word pastors. In most of your translations, it'll say pastors. It's the word poimen in the Greek, and it means shepherd. They didn't translate the word. It's a common word. It's a well-known word. It's the word for shepherd. And so your translations, oftentimes the translators decided, well, you know what the shepherds do within the body. They, they do what a shepherd would do, caring for the flock and feeding the flock and everything else. And so they threw the word pastor in there. But every time you read that, understand that it is shepherding. Now, why would there necessarily have to be a shepherd? Well, it's because the people within the church are sheep. And Christ himself likens his followers to sheep frequently. Sheep have certain characteristics, like they don't have sharp teeth, and they don't have claws. They don't have the ability to defend themselves. They're easy prey against lions and wolves. And sheep are, what's that word? Not real bright. Because sheep, no matter how many times you return them to the flock, wander off. And they get stuck in ditches. And they fall into holes. And so they need to have a guide. They need to have somebody who can keep them in the flock. That's a shepherd job. Now, by the way, since we're talking about shepherding, King David was a shepherd. He attended to his father's sheep. And the reason when Samuel came there and said to Jesse, bring forward your sons because out of your household, one of you is going to be the king of Israel. The reason that they kept ignoring the youngest boy is because he was out tending the sheep and that was pretty much the lowest job there was within a household. If you hired a servant to tend your sheep, that was the lowest of the servants. It was a dirty, thankless, constant job. In other words, 
It was a job that inspired humility. It was not a job that made you put your thumbs in your lapels and say, dig me, I'm the pastor of this church. And I think it's because that word pastor has taken on sort of a definition and a connotation of its own. Oh, you're the pastor. Oh, very impressive. I think if we use the word shepherd more often, we'd understand, oh, you're the greasy, grimy guy who goes out and tends all night to the sheep. Oh, you're the guy with the lowest job in the household. Wow, how'd you end up there? It's a job that inspires humility, rightly done, rightly understood. Now, you'll also notice in your translations that he gave some as apostles. The word as is added by the translators. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, and, and there's no word some there. The Greek word didaskalos which is the word, standard word, for teachers. And so because he didn't add the word some, people have postulated that maybe Paul is combining those offices so that he's saying in order to be a pastor, in order to be a poimane, to be a shepherd, you have to be able to teach. In his letter to Timothy, when Paul was describing leadership within the church, elders, deacons, As he was describing that, he says that one of the qualities that elders have to have is that they are apt to teach. That's the King James version of it. It just means capable of teaching. So perhaps that is Paul's thinking that in order to be a pastor in a church, you also have to be capable of teaching the church because that is part of what it is to guide the church. Because remember that a shepherd not only keeps the herd together, not only does the work of protecting the sheep, getting them into green grasslands so that they're fed, but the other thing that a shepherd does is that he guides the sheep. He leads the sheep. Several weeks ago, I mentioned sheep, and I said, does anybody here have sheep, raise sheep? And Jennifer raised her hand and said, yeah, I've I've had sheep. And I said, okay, correct me if I'm wrong here. You can't drive sheep. You can drive cattle, but you can't drive sheep. You have to lead sheep. Sheep follow. That's one of the chief characteristics of sheep that makes Christ refer to his people as sheep because they know his voice and they follow him. And so to be an effective shepherd, you have to be able to guide, you have to be able to lead, you have to be able to teach people so that you're leading them in the ways of Christianity. So he gave to the church these gifts because it's his church and he wants his church to understand the unity of the teaching, the unity of the understanding, the unity of the doctrine of the church, and therefore he gave some apostles and the apostolic teaching that came from them. He gave some prophets, those who can speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He gave some as evangelists, those who go out and tell the good news, and some as 
pastors and teachers because if the evangelists are effective by the Holy Spirit of God, if they are effective, they're going to bring people into the church. And once they're there, what do you do with them? Well, then you have a pastor, you have a guide, you have a teacher who guides them in the ways of Christianity. And that's exactly what Paul describes in verse 12. Here is the reason that he gave those five gift offices to the church. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of diakonos. That's the same word from which we get the word deacon. If you're a deacon within the church, you serve the church. You serve the body. Okay, well, that is the idea behind the gift ministries. The gift ministries were given for the church so that the saints, all of us, collectively, all of the holy ones who God has chosen and separated to himself, all of them can do the ergon, the work of diakonos, of service, of ministry to one another for the benefit, for the good of the whole body. Until we attain to the unity of the faith. Okay, so previously we read, and I tried to emphasize, that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We have the commonality of the Holy Spirit between us, and that creates unity and peace between us. But then there also is this faith, this Christian faith. What do Christians believe? What do Christians understand? How do Christians behave? That is the unity of the faith. And the only way to create unity of the faith is for there to be teachers and pastors and apostles and evangelists and prophets who speak under inspiration in order to tell the group, in order to tell the church, in order to tell the sheep, what God has said in his word in order to guide them, in order to instruct them until there is a unity of the way we all think and what it is we all believe, how it is that we all approach the the doctrines of the Bible, both the easy and the difficult doctrines. We come to a unity of mind, a unity of thought, a unity of understanding that creates a unity of understanding. I just said that word. That creates a Christian unity within the church so that we all attain to the unity of the faith and a unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So do you see what the upshot is of these gift ministries that Christ has given his church? He has given these gift ministries to the church for the purpose of bringing the body along in the doctrine of Christ until we all reach a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God so that we understand who Christ is, what Christ did. I have emphasized that the gospel, we even read it last week out of Paul's writings to the Corinthian church, the gospel can be broken down to very simple phrases that Christ actually lived, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that he rose again. That's the essential of the gospel right there. And if that was all you needed to know, this would be a really short book. Be less than a page long, 
And it would be like, there it is, that's all you need to know. But that still is the gospel. That is the essential elements of the gospel, unquestionably. But then, in order to understand what Christ actually did, who Christ actually is, who Christ is right now, what Christ is doing, what he has determined for the future, in order to understand all of that, we have to then read the word of God until we come to a knowledge of the Son of God, until we understand him more fully, more completely. And even if we spend our entire lifetime examining this word, and trying to get some kind of intellectual grip on what it says about Christ and the magnificence of what he's done and the incredible grace that he has shown to us, we still, we're just scratching the surface here. We're, we're still just trying to get some kind of idea of what God has really said about who he is and what he's like in the book of Isaiah on Wednesday nights as we've been reading through it. There have been sections of it that have just astounded us that have just made us think who is like this God and by the way it's God himself who's laying out the evidence and asking the question who's like me and you read that and you say wow that is astounding I would never have understood that I would never have come to that conclusion I would never have been able to grasp a God who's like that except that he told you same thing here the reason that the apostolic teaching is written down. The reason that there are people who can speak by inspiration within the church, the reason that there are people out evangelizing, the reason that there are teaching pastors within the church is so that we will all come to a unity of what we believe, this unity of the faith, and so that you as saints will be equipped for the work, the active work of the ministry until we all come to a knowledge of the Son of God. And that is an ongoing process, is my point. That's not something that you can dump into somebody's brain in one sitting. You give them a couple hours across the table, there, I've told you everything you need to know about the Bible. You can't do that. It's an ongoing, learning, living process. And you will continue learning until you draw your last breath. And then you'll go meet the Lord of glory and probably say, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> Just look at you. Amazing. So do you understand the function and the purpose of the ministries that Christ has given to the church, the gifts that he has given as leadership to the church for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry? to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, Paul is going to say, and when we begin to come to that unity of the faith, when we begin to understand and grow in our knowledge of the Son of God, that will make us mature Christians, grown-up Christians, because everybody starts as a baby in Christ. Now, we're still in Christ. If all you understand, if you fully are convinced that Jesus Christ came to the planet, he actually was the Son of God, he actually died, he actually was buried, and he actually rose again, 
if you believe that with all your heart, if you believe that definitely, if you believe those are facts, if you believe that, you're a Christian according to what the Bible says. You're a baby Christian. You don't know the stuff yet. And then as you learn about the doctrines, as you learn the deeper Christian biblical teaching, as you grow in that, Paul says, you become a grown-up. And he expects the church to be full of grown-ups. And I'm sad to say that far too many churches have become comfortable in the infant state. And they're just keeping everybody at nursery level. Because it's hard. It takes time. It takes thinking. It takes work to understand the whole of the Bible, the doctrines of Christ, to come to the knowledge a fuller understanding of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the pleroma, to the fullness of Christ. So the goal is to understand the fullness of Christ. Everything Christ did, everything Christ is, that's the goal. That's what you're constantly reaching for in this lifetime. And as I said, it is an ongoing process. But Paul expects you to grow up and do it. Grow up and do the work. Grow up and make the commitment. Far too much of Christianity is preached as if it's just an insurance policy for heaven. And once the preacher declares you're in, you just stop right there. You just stay at that level. You just stay fat and happy, ignorant, and, you know, well, I know what I need. I know as much as I need to get into heaven, and that's really all I'm looking for. I don't care about all that other doctrine stuff. And yet here is Paul advocating that within the church, we are to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to a grown-up person, to the measure of the stature, the grown-upness, the standing that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, once you start growing up in Christ, once you start being taught the doctrine and comprehending the teaching of the Bible, as a result, you're no longer children. As a result, you're a grown-up and you're no longer children. And now he's going to define what children would look like. We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. The word doctrine just means teaching. Every wind of teaching. Stuff that people just make up. People who say, oh, I've got some new doctrine. I've got some new learning. I've had this Gnostic revelation from God. The Holy Spirit has told me this. It's, it's not in your Bible anywhere, but I'm telling you this is true because I believe it. And it used to amaze me walking around Los Angeles. Number one, it amazed me that I was walking around Los Angeles. Um, it amazed me as I was going about in Los Angeles that there was a nut on every street corner. What I mean by that is there was this plethora of churches of every designation and every stripe and every denomination and every non-denomination and 
Man, sometimes you just see guys out on the street on a soapbox just talking nutty stuff. That wasn't the amazing part. I've always known that there were going to be people who were going to preach contrary to Christ. It happened in Paul's day. It's happening still. That's not the amazing part. The amazing part was every nut had five or six more nuts listening to him. Paying attention to him like he knew what he was talking about. That's amazing. Well, those are children who are carried about by every wave of doctrine. They can't wait to hear some new thing because they have itching ears. Just want to hear whatever they want to hear. They want to hear that stuff that makes them feel good about themselves. They want to hear that stuff that soothes and advances their own ego. They want to hear that God thinks you're a handful of aces. They don't want to hear that stuff where you're a depraved sinner. And that God in his almighty sovereign power is the one doing all the saving. They want to hear the stuff where you activate your salvation. You do something. You do the work. And then God's obligated to save you. Because that makes you feel really good about you. Which is the opposite of Christian humility. It's building people up in their arrogance and their pride and their sense of self-sufficiency. And there's so much weird doctrine out there these days. Because church has been around 2,000 years. But it really began really early. Has anybody here ever read the Gnostic Gospels? The so-called Gospels that didn't make it to the Bible because they didn't have apostolic authority. Like the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody ever read that? It was written somewhere 300, 400 AD. So not written by one of the apostles. But... It's full of all kinds of crazy stuff. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating, try this one on, ladies. Gospel of Thomas, which, by the way, if you're ever watching like A&E or the History Channel, and they ever do a show about the forbidden books of the Bible, they'll go right for the Gospel of Thomas. And they'll claim that that book should have been in the Bible and it was left out because of early church councils that wanted to be male dominant and that's why they did that. And Mary should have been one of the apostles and, you know, keeping women down, you know. Yeah, Gospel of Thomas also says women can't be saved. How do you feel about that one? And in fact, when you get to heaven, you'll be made into a man. Can you see why that didn't get included in the Bible? Because it's completely contrary to what the Bible says. And yet, there are people who read it and believed it. Every wave of doctrine, everything that comes down the pike, there's somebody who will believe it. Every cult was begun by somebody who came up with, hey, I got a new idea. Joseph Smith starts with, all the churches are wrong. Everybody's got it wrong. And then he claims to have heard from the angel Moroni, and he starts laying out all this new doctrine. And you read it, and you think, well, that's not biblical at all. Nobody would buy that. Yeah, how big is the Mormon church? Mm. Lots of people believe it. Every wind of doctrine. Over the course of the history of the Catholic church, how many things did they invent? Like the perpetual virginity of Mary. Or that Mary is co-redemptrix. That you can go to Mary and she'll go to her son and she'll redeem you because he can't refuse her. Mm -hmm. 
Is that in the Bible anywhere? No. No. That falls under the category of every wave of doctrine. Or you can just say, I'm Muhammad. This is the one that, that will get me killed, just so you all know. <laughs> um, and you say, yeah, you know, I, I got a new revelation, and it turns out that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that it was somebody else on the cross. You know, that's completely different than what the Bible says, but how many people believe that now? Lots of them, millions of them here on the planet who believe every wave of doctrine. Okay, so why am I emphasizing this? I'm just trying to show you that it was true in Paul's day. It's true today. And in fact, I would say more true today. There's even more errant doctrine. There's even more unbiblical teaching. And there's a whole lot, masses, millions of people who believe all that errant teaching. And according to Paul here, they're still children. They need to grow up into Christ. Not into their church, not into their denomination, not into their religion. They need to grow up in Christ. And as you grow up in Christ, he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. He's the one who did it all. And the more you understand of the doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the more astounded you will be to find out everything that he actually fully accomplished on your behalf. He gets all the credit. And that, if you can find somebody on this God-forsaken planet who actually believes what we sang this morning in Christ alone, if you can find somebody who actually believes that, then you found somebody who's growing up in Christ. You get it? Let's hear Paul put it all together. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now, where does that strange doctrine come from? Does it come from God? Does it come from Christ? It comes from the trickery of men by craftiness in their deceitful scheming. That's what what Paul said. He said all of that doctrine that isn't Christ-centered, all of that teaching that dilutes the true teaching of Christ, all that extra-biblical teaching, all that Gnostic teaching, all that Christ-denying teaching, he said comes from deceitful men, through the trickery of men, and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. They have a scheme. Well, here, I'll give you an example. Anybody here familiar with Dianetics? Okay, so Hubbard was a uh, science fiction writer originally. And according to the story that his son wrote, he one day realized that if he made himself a church, he didn't have to pay taxes. And so he created Scientology. Scientology is not a Christian religion. It's not a biblical religion. It's barely a science it's none of those things how rich is that church 
through trickery, through craftiness, through taking advantage of other people until you can get into their wallet. If you want to get clear, if you want to go to the next level of clearness, you can. That'll only cost you several thousand dollars. Just keep coughing up the money and we'll keep coughing up the fakery for you. And yet there are people who believe it. Okay, so there's another very current example that is going on in the world right now. People are being carried about by every wind of doctrine through the trickery of men, by the craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. They have a scheme. They have an idea. They want to bring acolytes to themselves. They want to, they want to make money, and they want to make money off you through their deceitful scheming. But here's the solution to it. Those gift ministries that have been given to the church, here's what they are to do in order to counteract the trickery and the craftiness and the deceitfulness of this world. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Christ, who is the head of the church, even Christ. Okay, so that's the solution. What is the solution to the trickery and deceitfulness of men here on the planet? What is the solution to all the fake doctrine that is blowing people apart? The solution is we who know Christ stand in Christ. We can't be moved away from Christ. We keep preaching Christ. We keep speaking the truth through agape, through love, sacrificially, telling the truth over and over and over again as we all mature in Christ so that we grow up to the fullness of the stature of Christ so that we understand all aspects of Christ who is the head of the body, who is the head of the church. He has preeminence within his church because after all, he's building his church. He constructs his church. He gives gifts to the members of his church, including gifts of leadership within the church so that the church is not just wandering around looking for a leader and being blown away by every wind of doctrine. Instead, there is a doctrine. There is an apostolic teaching. And God gives the church generation by generation for 2,000 years now, gives the church appropriate leadership so that there can be a unity of the faith as there ought to be within the church. Now, when you do that, will you become the most popular church in town? No. When you tell people what they want to hear, you can build a great big church. If you're going to stand for Christ and Christ alone, it's hard to find those people. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom, from Christ, the whole body, the body of Christ, the body of the church, that's us, are being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. Okay, so every one of you, I said said an hour ago, every one of you are given gifts. Those gifts that you are given is for the good of the whole body, for the edification of the whole body. Christ, who is the head of the body, is then creating, forming the body, 
fitting it together according to the gifts that he gave each individual and then he plugs them into the particular place in the body where they best serve the whole body and where they best serve him the whole body is being fitted and held together by that which every individual joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part and that causes growth within the body for the building up of itself in love. It's a remarkable passage. It's a passage that describes how the church is to function, how we are to operate. And by the way, if what we just read is true, and it is, if what we just read is true, then there's nobody in the church who doesn't have a function who doesn't have a place within the church. There's nobody within the church who gets to say, and I do, I get these emails frequently from people who say, I don't know what my place is. I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what my calling is. And I write back and say, God's still sovereign? God's still on the throne? Christ's still building his church? If the answer to those questions is yes, he knows. He knows you. He knows what he's doing with you. Faith in him, trust in him. There are no insignificant portions of the church because you are, after all, the body of the living Christ. And as long as he's alive and as long as he's in the enterprise of building his church, he has knitted you into place, put you where you're supposed to be according to the gifts and abilities that he has given you. And that's how the church functions together peacefully. And that's why we're not blown away by every wind of doctrine because we know what the proper doctrine is and that's what we keep week by week, week by week, hearing over and over again. Tom has been here at GCA. By the way, uh, what is today? May 2nd. Okay. I was ordained into the ministry Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, year 2000. So we're coming up on the 21st anniversary of my ordination. Uh, We've been here come June 6th. We've been in this building as a public church for 20 years now. Tom has sat right there, that exact chair. No, but he has been there for the majority of that 20 years. Jeff has been here for the majority of that 20 years. Shane and Elizabeth go back to the early, early days in this room. So now let me ask those of you who have been around for that long. Are you sick of hearing about Christ yet? Never. See, that's the sign of mature people. Because we've all grown up to understand more and more and more about the teaching, the doctrine of Christ. And we will never, ever exhaust the subject. And as long as God gives me breath and I'm able to stand up here, even if I have to be held up by a couple big guys like Shane. That's his gift. As long as I... What'd you say? That's his gift. That's his gift. Your gift is hold Jim up. Wow, did you get a bad gift. I know. Wow. <laughs> no, no, no matter what, hopefully till my dying breath, I'm going to keep saying it's Christ. It's all Christ. It's Christ alone. He's in all. He's through all. He made it all, and it all exists for him and for his purpose. And so we're never going to reach the point where we can say, 
did it, got it. Instead, we're going to spend the rest of our lives pursuing the maturity, the grown-upness of genuine Christianity. And that starts with ministry to one another. You got it? Well, then I think we're done. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.